shotglassdigital.com. Rebel Force Radio presents... This is Master Obi-Wan Kenobi. I regret to report that both our Jedi Order and the Republic have fallen. This is Star Wars Rebels Declassified. I like the sound of that. A roundtable discussion about Star Wars Rebels. Pretty gutsy move, kid. I am the Inquisitor. Or Boston. Chopper, get us out of here. Now it's time for Star Wars Rebels Declassified. Mustafar. We're going to Mustafar on Star Wars Rebels? That's next week. Can't wait. A lot of mystery surrounding Mustafar. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Kanan being tortured. The choices made by Ezra and Hera. All kinds of great things jam-packed in this episode Plus, a pretty significant reveal over at StarWars.com and the Rebels Recon about Hera's father. Confirmation about some of the things we've been speculating here on Rebels Declassified. And that's what you're listening to right now. Yes, from Rebel Force Radio, we are Rebels Declassified, where we break down, make up, tell lies, exaggerate about Star Wars Rebels. And uh, with me, to help me, Tell lies and all that good stuff. My good friend and yours from Chicago, also known as the Icy Tundras of Hoth. Of course. These days. <laughs> with no break. My good friend and yours, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars Rebels fans. Yeah, remember when George Lucas actually referred to the planet as Hoth? Yeah. Yeah, just to mess with us. <laughs> just to mess with us. So now we're going back to Mustafar, or yeah. Mustafar, as I used to call it. Like mustard? Yeah, Mustafar. Mustafar. But I think in the show they said Mustafar. Yeah. So that's pretty uh, intriguing, and uh, I think they're going to find some familiar faces once they finally arrive to Mustafar, and, or Mustafar, however you want to call it. And we'll be getting into all that this week on Star Wars Rebels Declassified. Also joining us, we've got a great panel assembled here from Del Rey. He's actually the editor and the senior production manager for Del Rey. They know a little bit of something about Star Wars books there. Uh, Arish Schoenweiss is with us. Arish, welcome back. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jimmy. How are you guys? Good, man. Glad to have you back. Yeah, glad to be back. Thanks for the invite. Of course, of course. And also joining us this week, uh, the co-host of Disney Vault Talk, also the Fangirls Going Rogue podcast, both of which can be heard on the Shot Glass Digital Network, and also part of the Star Wars Bookworms, which I want to know more about that, Teresa Delgado joining us once again. Welcome back, Teresa. Hey, guys. I'm glad to be back. What's a Star Wars Bookworm? What's a Star Wars Bookworm? Yeah. That is a person who reads your favorite stuff, all the EU and comics and legends and yeah. All that kind oh of my. Stuff. So is that <laughs> oh a, is it a is it a formal group? Is it something that's done on the Twitter? Where <laughs> where's the Star Wars bookworms? Well, um it's kind of we have a podcast um that we do and it's monthly. We do a couple shows a month. We do a lot of inter- author interviews and stuff like that. But we also have a book club on Goodreads that um Delray people, Arish included, actually participate in a lot. Um, and we've had authors like John Jackson Miller participate and other things like that. So it's and it's pretty good. We do. We read a book every month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody. And then you break it all down. Yep. And we break it down in um, in good. You read an format. entire book in one month. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing Jason. we love them we're, we're 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 big fans of the star wars bookworms <laughs> podcasters who actually read our books oh what? stop that <laughs> what the hell kind of comments is that we're getting our balls busted already we sure are we sure are and i'm sure Eris, you've listened to every single episode of rebel force radio Every uh, single yeah. minute of every <laughs> single episode. Touche. Touche. Yes. Bite your tongue, sir. <laughs> but uh, by the way, uh, Heir to the Jedi is coming out next week. That is uh, the first 
Star Wars novel to be completely told from the perspective of Luke Skywalker himself. And I got to say, Irish, I'm a good hundred pages into it. Thanks to uh, advanced copy, courtesy of uh, the fine folks over there at uh, Random House Delray Penguin. Did I get everyone in there? And but no, it's it's a good read so far. About a hundred pages in, good read. Cool. It gets better too. Awesome, awesome. So, well, thanks for joining us, both you guys, as we get into a little Star Wars Rebels action here. Yes, let's talk about Star Wars Rebels. This is uh, this is kind of bittersweet. We're approaching the end of season one. We've got one more episode to go, but we are talking about episode twelve here in season one, Rebel Resolve. Now, we don't have Stephen Stanton here this week to tell us what the real title was supposed to be. <laughs> Rebel Resolve. Yeah, yeah. Why, are they going to throw more, a few more R's in there? Yeah. That would be good. Resolve. Uh, original air date, February 16th, 2016. That was the on demand. And then uh, followed a week later, February 23rd, 2015, uh, on uh, traditional broadcast directed by Justin Ridge and written by... One of our favorites, Henry Gilroy and Charles Murray. So um, we are approaching the end, and I and I actually want to jump to the end of this episode. And I, I alluded to it in the in the introduction, uh, Arish. But uh, Mustafar, uh, obviously a significant planet in terms of Star Wars legacy, and yeah. what it sort of uh, the era that it re- ushered in. But I'm just kind of curious. What are your thoughts about? what the legends surrounding Mustafar might be, given the fact that there really were, um, there were no survivors for all intents and purposes. Well, it's, it's interesting that one little sentence at the end of the episode, like just really ignited the, the fan base. Everybody seems to be talking about, about Mustafar and all the possibilities. Now, I think that there's uh you know, I, I, almost anything could uh, could be part of these legends. I, my first thought upon hearing it was, you know, we all know Mustafar is basically kind of the birthplace of Darth Vader. You know, it's it's you know where Anakin and Obi Wan had their big duel, and you know, left Anakin burning on the the lava beach and stuff, and thus had to be put into the armor and everything. And, you know, I think in our minds, we all kind of have this impression of, you know, Vader out there hunting Jedi and stuff. So, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if that's the place that he's dragging them back to, to interrogate and torture? Or, you know, where are the other? I'm sure he's like trying to find out where other Jedi might be hiding from them. So, I mean, who knows what the possibilities are with that? But I'm really, really intrigued by it. You know, uh, Teresa, one of the things that I thought of was perhaps this could be this castle, Darth Vader's castle that uh, we've heard about for a long time that's never actually been Yeah, it goes all the way back to, like, Return of the Jedi, I think. I think in the novelization, right, of Return of the Jedi where it's alluded to. It might even be... I know there was a lot of concept art done for it. Yes. for, uh, For Vader's castle. What do you think, Teresa? Could we be looking at uh, Darth Vader's home world, home planet? I mean, we know it's obviously Tatooine, but um, that was Anakin Skywalker. That name has no more meaning to him. We're talking about Darth Vader. I think it's entirely possible. I mean, we kind of see him that way in Revenge of the Sith when he's sort of in the remains of um, whatever the Separatist building that they're in and the window he's looking out of. It wouldn't put it past me that he's, you know, developed something there for himself as kind of his hideout, his place to be. Um, And if we look at what's starting to develop in the comics, which are now canon, um, it's it probably it's very possible that that could actually come to fruition. I would be excited to learn, you know, if the emperor even knows that that exists, if it is there. Um, Well, it was it was Sidious who initially sent Vader to Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. Correct. But does he know he tells him that he's got a mission for him on Mustafar? So, you know, Sidious, I think Sidious had something going there already. It was like maybe his 
maybe it was initially his castle. All right, all right. Yeah. Hold on. on. On Mustafar, of course, the last time we saw it in canon, and I'm not talking about any comic books, but it was in season two of The Clone Wars. The episode was Children of the Force, and Sidious was hanging out on Mustafar, and he had hired Cad Bane to kidnap Force-sensitive children and bring them to him. Remember the... Well, I, you know, he wasn't... Sidious himself wasn't actually on Mustafar. If I re- recall correctly, his hologram was. And his hologram was looking over these Force-sensitive children that he had kidnapped and had in a, a bizarre Sith nursery... And uh, he was sort of tending to them in hologram form. Liam Neeson would have been proud. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, I think, I really think that's, it, I, I believe so. That was the last time we actually saw Mustafar. But, but not chronologically. Yeah. Well, and of course, of course, yeah, chronologically, we, the last time we saw it was at the end of Revenge of the Sith, of course. But we know that Sidious has business on Mustafar. And um, now, Teresa, you mentioned the comic, and I assume you're alluding to the one Marvel comic I've yet to read. That's Darth Vader number one. Are there yes. hints? Are there now? Spoiler alert! Of of course. Um, are there hints within that comic book that suggest what is happening on the planet Mustafar? Not on the planet Mustafar, but there are hints in the comic book that Vader is taking some things into his own hands and doing things that the Emperor doesn't know about and wouldn't approve of because he wants to redeem himself. Because the whole story is basically, at least in the uh, number one, is that the Emperor blames Vader for the Death Star. Um, along with other people, but blames Vader. And so Vader is doing things behind Palpatine's back. Yeah. Um, And so if that's the case and if that is going on, then it wouldn't surprise me if we have some of that maybe developing in Rebels, you know, of Vader going, you know, off on his own to do some of his own thing. Um well, that would be very consistent, right, with the whole yes. traditions of the Sith. They're, they're sure. very untrustworthy. In fact, it's almost a, a well, rite of passage. I think we're kind of jumping to conclusions here also. You know, in the actual episode that we're, we're talking about, you know, there, there wasn't any mention of Vader in it. We're just attaching Vader to that because of what was released this morning, you know, that, that – we're going to see Vader in the next episode. Oh, well, that's Vader, Vader may not be involved in this Mustafar business at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We, we are jumping to conclusions because, of course, we haven't mentioned that on the show at all, that this morning it was announced that Darth Vader is going to be appearing in the season finale of, of Rebels. So it's easy to start making those connections. But we don't know if we're actually going to see Vader. Um, we may not Mustafar. even see Mustafar at all either. Right. I mean, we're, we're jumping to conclusions there, too. Well, that is what right. we do uh, right. on the show. <laughs> uh, I, I mentioned that we lie and we exaggerate and we, di- we also jump to conclusions. Uh, in fact, I have a jump to conclusions mat right here uh, in front of me uh, to make it easy. So, nice. uh, Jimmy, am yeah. I, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is more your wheelhouse than it is mine when you talk about some of the, the early concept work and concept art in between uh, episodic films of the classic trilogy. Am I mixing memories? Was there not a Vader castle on a lava planet, or, am I, or was it that there was a volcano planet, and that's obviously where Vader became Vader, and then there was a, a castle somewhere else. I'm thinking of, like, how uh, had Abaddon or something. <laughs> For Return of the Jedi, there was concept art done of Vader's castles, but also concept art done for a lava throne room for oh, Sidious. Very enlightening, Erish. Thanks for taking my uh, question from me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, I did edit the making of Return of the Jedi. So I, that's true. So you would know these things. Ooh, flexing some muscle. Okay, I like that. I like that. You bring credibility to the show, Erish, and that cannot be underestimated. Oh, a first. Uh, but um, you know, just to uh, back up what Erish said, that's absolutely right, and. The original concept for Vader's castle actually appeared in early drafts for Empire Strikes Back. 
And there were some thumbnail sketches that Ralph was working on that were actually completed by our own Paul Bateman just last year. Oh, wow. Or two years ago for Star Wars Celebration Europe. And uh, those depictions of Vader's castle were actually in a more mountainous, snowy environment and not in that the depths of hell like later incarnations or concepts for the Vader castle would reveal. Yeah, you know, I'm looking actually at the at the uh, the image right now of the the lava throne room. Um, so yeah, I think I am kind of mixing these up in my mind uh, as as we look back. But before before we leave this topic, uh, Jim, I want you to have a chance to to weigh in here and speculate with us or jump to conclusions about mm. what the legacy of or the you know the um, what rumors, whispers could there be amongst the Jedi that survived about Mustafar? You're obviously talking prior to the events of Order 66. I think Mustafar was one of those locations in the galaxy that was really kept under wraps, not unlike a Camino, where it wasn't really common knowledge. I want to say that, but darn it, Obi-Wan Kenobi sure found that planet with no Yeah, problem. we don't really know. I mean, we don't. I mean, 3PO and Padme found that planet. I, I, I don't think there's really anything significant about the planet itself. No, in terms it of, seems like there was an industrial scene going yes, on there. Yes, and that's where the, the Separatist leadership went to hide out, basically. Yeah. They were stationed there. Um, well, you'd have to assume with those guys, they seem like a bunch of very pampered elitists, and to put them, have them headquartered on that planet is pretty much the last place you would expect to find these guys. Sure, hiding them out in the open, almost right, because they would never, they would never go there. What I'm trying to get at is, what do we think, um, given the fact that there were, like I said, essentially no survivors, Vader. Um, or Anakin, let's call it, was all but dead. Um, Obi-Wan went into hiding immediately uh, following those events. Uh, so there really wasn't anybody to tell the, the tale of, of Mustafar. Ah, one guy, mm. Bail Organa. Ah. Yeah. Aha. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and Bail will be showing up in the season finale, according to the latest Star Wars Insider. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Okay, so um, and interesting too. I mean, where Jedi go to go to die could also mean Anakin. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, and it could refer to the the Jedi, the the Force children that were kidnapped that that Jimmy brought up. Um, you know, maybe there's other stories similar to that that have floated around. Well, the fight on Mustafar is sort of symbolic of. The fall of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and the whole so the, the whole, whole Jedi the whole Jedi uh, culture seemed to die on Mustafar, and that concept of of the Force children and Palpatine looking for them is a definite callback to the uh, Vader sequence that was added to the the front of Spark of Rebellion, right. where he specifically tells the Inquisitor to be on the look for these Force sensitive children. Children so of the Force. Of, right. And, so it's, and that was the name of the episode from season two of The Clone Wars. Right. So it's all kind of tying in together. Hmm. That's kind of interesting because right from the get-go, we saw immediate connections to the original trilogy with Star Wars Rebels. But I think the deeper we dig and the further we go along into this season and then season two, we're going to be seeing more and more connections to, to the, the Clone Wars. Well, which mm-hmm. leads me to, uh, Arish, let's talk about it. Probably the, certainly in terms of screen time, the biggest appearance we've had of the mysterious Fulcrum. Well, we've speculated on the program here in the past. Jimmy is uh, famously, um, in fact, I've got the clip right here. Here is uh, f- the voice of Fulcrum as um, manipulated in the Rebel Force Radio Sound Labs by Jimmy Mack. <laughs> and it sounds like someone we know. Sounds like Ashley Eckstein is Sokotano to me. Uh, but <laughs> did that, you that, did you really go all CSI on that? Uh, Jimmy did. I did. <laughs> yes, Jimmy he did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so here's I the whole did. here's the whole evolution of this. I'll I'll play them here real quick. So this is uh, how it appeared in the episode. Welcome to Ghost. Docking complete. Heading to the airlock now. And uh, and then this one. Welcome to Ghost. Docking complete. Heading to the airlock now. 
And that actually sounds. There it is. Now that middle one sounded more uh, to my ears the way Fulcrum sounded in this episode. Yeah, I gotta uh, say, I be- played around with the audio from this episode too because they give us a much larger sample to mm. mess around with. But boy, oh boy, they're being really careful now. They've added additional. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've, added, they've added additional ring modulation. They've uh, they've really uh, done some very interesting tricks with this. I, I think they've upped the ante. Um, here's just a, a little example of what Fulcrum sounded like in um, Call to Action. Can't right. the risks. Accepted them. I'm sorry, but you must focus on your next objective. But Fulcrum, Kanan is our objective. We can still find him. At what cost? You, your unit, the overall mission... <laughs> I like how Hera sounded like something out of the Rugrats like right there. Minnie Mouse is secretly Hera. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so, that's, what, that's what we're going to find out. In, in Disney style, it's going to be Minnie Mouse. Uh, no, I, you're right, Jim. I don't think that that is quite as uh, as damning as the the previous audio. And, and I think that's in large part a testament to you and your <laughs> mad skills. And they're trying to cover their tracks a little bit more. Or they just got a different actor in there. Well, and then there's been recent developments online mm-hmm. that um, uh, th- there is a, a voiceover artist in Europe who has publicly let it know, be known that she plays Fulcrum slash Ahsoka. <laughs> in, really? Yes, in whatever version of Rebels she's voicing. I, I think she's from France. I'm not 100% sure. I don't have the story right. Oops. No, she is. She was the the French... Um, Ahsoka yeah. in the Clone Wars. Yes. And so she's been saying that she is Fulcrum Ahsoka in Rebels for the French translation. Thanks a lot. So, <laughs> you know, her, her phone will mysteriously stop ringing, I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> for any future uh, gigs with Disney slash Lucasfilm. But, uh, this is why I don't read the rumor sites. <laughs> uh, yes, Olivia Lucioni. Is a very busy actress, including doing French voice acting for Ahsoka Tano in the Clone Wars from 08 to 12. She also happens to be very up to date. Um, she also happens to have a very up to date website on her website. She also has uh, an update uh, which lists all of her acting roles into the television series, blah, 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 Star Wars Ahsoka Tano, disguised as Fulcrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, who reported that? Uh, this is uh, making Star Wars had this story, but um, the, I mean, it's just it's right there on her website. So it's not I don't know about <laughs> how, how, how scoopy it is. Um, well, throw that question out. No more need to speculate there. Um, but I but I do think it's interesting, uh, Arish. And let's let's say let's say, for example, that. Let's say, for the sake of argument, this is a, a a Jedi of some sort. Maybe it's Ahsoka. Maybe it's not. What she, he, or it is advocating to Hera is, in a lot of ways, kind of the old school Jedi way of no, no attachments. It's 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 bigger than just one person. Move on. Turn your back on Kanan. He knew the risks. Move on, so as to not. Um, you know, kind of bring it down for everybody else that's that's fighting for freedom and independence in the galaxy. This is something that's um, we see a lot in Star Wars. This notion of sacrifice and whether or not that sacrifice should be met with further sacrifice or trying to prevent disaster and all of that. Uh, this is just one more. So, do you think that that is more evidence that this is a Jedi? Yeah, I think it's possible, but I think it's in that message to Hera. I thought it was really interesting too that that she was very adamant that they had they had gone beyond their mission. That you know they had made themselves too big. That they had made themselves known, and that was not what they were supposed to do. So their mandate was was what? Do we know? And do we know where they where they overstepped? Because I thought it was always to disrupt the communications and send some sort of message out there? Or was that their own? No, that message? was Kanan's Kanan's yeah. mission Their Harris mission with them from that little piece that I gathered with her conversation with Fulcrum in this episode 
was that they were not to have done that, that they were supposed to have stayed small, stayed secretive so that they could continue basically just being this nuisance to the empire on the fall, like going about their small missions as they basically been doing the first 11 episodes that we had seen or the first 10 episodes. But then in episode 11, when they sent that message out and made themselves known and made themselves known to a wider spectrum than just Lethal, that they had breached what their mission parameters were and had put a target on them. And we're seeing that because now sudden there's Tarkin and there's a lot more, I, I counted like six Star Destroyers, I think, circling Lethal when we saw the the map that Sabine and Zeb and Ezra were looking at. You know, you could see like the little red triangles. I just assumed that those were Star Destroyers. So all of a sudden there's this much, and they mentioned it a couple times in the episode too, that the Empire locked down the planet. And so that keeps them from being able to conduct the missions that, that – Hera was getting instructions and directive to do. But but why, Teresa, do you think that Fulcrum would be advancing the idea that they should just turn their back on Kanan first? And, and secondly, why would Hera just accept that? Well, I think that, you know, Hera has seen a lot of things and I don't know if we want to mention the stuff from rebels recon here or not. Yeah, Sure. We can. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's relevant. So in rebels recon, they revealed that Chom Syndulla from the Ryloth arc um, from the clone wars is actually Hera's father. So Hera has obviously witnessed a lot of things and she has that mentality of that. There is, you're fighting for the greater good. Um, and that every now and then you will have a soldier that you have to leave behind or that falls behind because this is that kind of time. And I think she accepts that because deep down she has that kind of soldier mentality, you know, that sometimes that's just what you have to do. Um, I This is just something I've kind of thought of, but I really think that the development of the Death Star is happening on Lothal. And I think that Hera knows that. And I think that their mission is to be invisible and to not be seen so that they can try to disrupt that um, or maybe even possibly get the plans from the Death Star and be the ones that deliver it um, to, let's say, the rebels in A New Hope. When you say Um, say the the development of the Death Star is happening on Lothal, what do you mean? The actual construction? No, like they're getting the kyber crystals. They're getting, you know, all the materials that they need because they're doing a lot of mining. They're doing a, yeah. you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. So they're, they're getting everything together and the materials that they need from Lothal to go and build the Death Star. Well, that's, that, I'm, I'm glad that you've thrown that theory out there because my next question was actually, you know, to Arish's point, uh, Jim, when he mentions uh, the six Star Destroyers. Now, you could say, well, uh, obviously there's heightened interest uh, because of the possibility of there being a Jedi and an apprentice. But let's not forget that there is at least one, maybe several Inquisitors scouring the galaxy, uh, cleaning up the remaining Jedi. Do you think they scatter uh, six uh, Star Destroyers around Every system that has a potential Jedi, is it something about Kanan or is what Teresa's saying uh, holding water that there is actually something very big going on on Lothal? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think Teresa's speculation is the most plausible. I, uh, I, I, I don't see the planet itself having any value outside of its natural resources. I don't think the Jedi is what's really attracting a lot of attention. However, 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 it has been pointed out several times that the insurgencies happening on Lothal are something a little out of the ordinary and something that might be a little bit more disruptive than they've been encountering with typical rebel cells, however many currently exists scattered throughout the galaxy. So it definitely has attracted the attention of the Empire. Whether that be for the actual Jedi and band of rebels that surround Kanan, 
or whether it actually has to do with the natural resources that the planet can provide. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that there is an imperial training center there. There's an actual, you know, there is a lot of imperial activity happening on this planet. There would have to be a reason for that. So the planet itself must have some sort of value to the empire. That's my guess. And I think that's a really good bit of uh, analysis from Teresa because it's something I've never really considered before. We do know that the planet does have secrets, the Jedi Temple being one of them. What else does the planet contain that is of value to the characters in the show? Mm Erish, do you think that... um that the fact that there's more than just a Jedi, but a Jedi and an apprentice, is that is that kind of turning up the heat more on this particular group or this particular case that the Inquisitor is working on? Um, I, I think it's of interest to the Inquisitor, but I don't think it's of... I don't know how interested Tarkin necessarily is. Ah, and, good point, because and, it, it, and, almost and seems back, as though, it almost seems as though this is just a nuisance to him. Mm-hmm. But going back to what Teresa said about the importance of this planet playing in the construction of the Death Star, we know that that's, you know, Tarkin's thing. That, you know, he's overseeing the construction of the Death Star. You know, he's almost OCD about it, if you would. And so if this group of rebels, if our our ghost crew is, um, you know, if they're throwing a monkey wrench into the minerals getting off the planet or supplies getting off the planet, whatever it is that he needs to keep himself on schedule for the construction of the what Death was Star. That? What was that? Schedule. I'm trying, trying uh, to channel my best uh, Stephen I, Stanton there. I heard it. I heard it. Schedule. Um, mm. Schedule. But, you know, that's that's what brings him there in, in, uh, in episode 11 is, you know, we got to be done with these guys. And, you know, when the thought of there being a Jedi and – amongst them is brought up he kind of just like laughs it off like they don't exist anymore you know this is just a a small group of rebels that are throwing a monkey wrench into my construction of the death star and we need to be done with them yeah and you know something that i thought about too because we we talked about this on the program last week uh about tarkin's um almost kind of uh insane denial (laughs) of of the Jedi, um, but it, it makes sense if he is there to keep those Imperial officers and those troopers on schedule uh, and focused on the construction of, you know, potentially one of the most significant um, developments and, you know, war, the war machine um, that, that the galaxy has ever seen. So the stakes are very high, and it just feels like Tarkin doesn't have time for that, and he's not going to humor any more of this and just kind of nip it in the bud and let the Inquisitor deal with it and and move on. But something changes along the way to where Tarkin um, feels, I think, Teresa, that this Jedi, there's there's something about him. I mean, why else would Tarkin take him uh, off-world and torture him? And then potentially take him to an, even a, a further step in taking him to Mustafar for you know further advanced interrogation. Yeah, you know you can see that his attitude is starting to change. How versus how it was in Call to Action. In Call to Action, he was very much like, okay, this is a waste of time. Let's just get it over with. You know, he's not really a Jedi, but. In this, as we see the interrogation scenes happen and we see Kanan resist and we see him almost resist effortlessly, I can talk. Um, You know, he has that line when the Inquisitor is trying to cause him pain where he says, I can see, I see you're getting more frustrated, you know, and he just sort of laughs it off. I think at that point, Tarkin is like, okay, you know, I'm actually dealing with a Jedi now. I'm actually dealing with something that could be you know, a potential threat to the Empire, um, not just my Death Star, but for what the, you know, Emperor actually wants here. And I I think that's why now he's got to take him off world, because at first he just didn't think that they existed anymore. Um, I also think that Tarkin, 
just thinks that anything having to do with the Force or, you know, the Sith or Jedi or whatever is kind of silly, for lack of a better term. And it's just, it's not worth it to him to deal with. But he can see that he knows that it's threatening. And and, and just Kane, the way Kanan held up, I think, is what caused that. Ah. If, if I may, too, yeah. during that interrogation, Tarkin's more interested in the other rebel cells that Kanan may know about. He's asking him about other rebels, not necessarily about other Jedi. Hmm. That's a good and point. It's That's when, a good it's point, when right? the Inquisitor comes in that the Inquisitor's interested, if I remember this correctly, that the Inquisitor was more interested in the possibility of other Jedi, but it's it's Tarkin, and, you know, and Kanan doesn't know about any of the other rebel cells because Hera intentionally kept that from him so that he couldn't reveal it if he was captured that, that that's a that I'm glad you brought that up because that was uh, w- where I was going next which is that little moment it's a one little line where she says to Zeb Harris says to Zeb that he doesn't know anything Kanan yeah. doesn't know anything and w- w- of course my mind immediately went to oh so this so they they don't really share a lot with each other about each other's background but you've kind of opened my eyes Arish that it's not about tell me about your rebel friends in terms of the crew of the ghost but it's surely you must be connected beyond just this little ragtag group that you have tell me um, yeah because yeah. we may not we're not seeing it in rebels but i'm sure that there's other small groups like this out there who are just as annoying to the empire or you know at, on different levels possibly so it's possible that you know, the Empire is seeing this kind of insurgent activity against them in other systems. And they're now starting to possibly, maybe there's a connection between them. Right. You know, it made me wonder, uh, Jim, when we saw the Inquisitor and the interrogation on Kanan, uh, it, br- it br- brings the question up about the scope of the Inquisitor's force powers you'll notice that he wasn't able to generate force lightning on his own it looks like he was able to take some lightning that was being created by the the torture device and i don't know if he was magnifying it or what he was able to cause some a little bit of physical pain but uh where do you think he ranks in terms of his just innate um force abilities well he certainly has skills he has ability he's adept at using the force but i believe his skills are limited and i do not believe he is anywhere near the level of vader who by the way i i eventually believe will end up killing the inquisitor i bet that is exactly what we see not next week I don't think they're going to jump the gun that fast. I think we're going to get to know the inquisitor for a little while longer but i have predicted here on Declassified that Vader is the one who will put an end to the Inquisitor. And that will happen at some point during Star Wars Rebels, which is a show that I don't think will last longer than three or four seasons. I think four seasons at the most. And then I think they'll move on to maybe uh, doing animation in the era of The Force Awakens, 30 years after Return of the Jedi. That's where I think uh, the direction with Lucas Animation is heading. So um, there's going to have to be resolution with these characters. And that is when you'll really see the Inquisitor's skills being put to the test. Right now, he and Kanan are a great matchup. They match up really well because they have raw force abilities. They have limited skills. So when they face off against each other, it's a darn good fight because they're very even on that level. But should Kanan come across someone of the likes of Darth Vader or the Emperor, it'll be game over pretty quickly. I feel confident of that. So as far as um, the Inquisitor being any kind of significant force user... He's a tool. He's a tool. He's a tool. You know, I almost get the impression that he's kind of like if you were to take... You know, obviously, the, the higher your midichlorian count, we know this now, 
uh, the higher your metachlorian count, the, the the more force sensitive you are, and therefore the more natural abilities you have. I always get the impression that the Inquisitor is just like a normal guy, or it was a normal guy at one point that had little to no metachlorian count, but he's just someone, he's about as advanced as you could train up in Jedi arts or the Jedi way without having any real ability. Right. Well, look at it this way with that midichlorian count thing. I mean, because someone has a certain level of midichlorians does not make him a more powerful user of the force. You need the training. That has been, that has been obvious since day one of Star Wars. That if you don't have the training, you could be flooded with these midichlorians. But if you don't have the training, you're not going anywhere with it. And right now, we're dealing with two characters. One, the Inquisitor. Obviously, where did he receive his training from? Can we assume the Emperor? Should we assume Darth Vader? You know that the Sith will be keeping him down. They would not let him reach his full potential, much like General Grievous. That's kind of where I put him on that that level, as far as being Sith wannabes, let's Mm -hmm. just say. They're Sith wannabes. They have a certain level of skill, a certain level of toughness and determination, but they're not, they're not any sort of elite force users. Right. Well, Grievous was, uh, was, he was all lightsaber true, skill true. programmed. Right. You know, into- but of course, yeah, he had, he had no natural force ability, but he went through operations to enhance himself so he could actually match up against the Jedi because right. naturally he wouldn't be able to. Right. We've seen we've seen the Inquisitor with a, a, a force push. We've seen the Inquisitor the Inquisitor with some some mind tricks, at least in terms of being able to kind of get into someone's head, and then in this latest episode cause you know physical physical pain. But um, uh, I, yeah, Eric, go think, ahead. Yeah. yeah, I think that I mean as. Speaking of the Inquisitor, I, I think that you know he's probably had some training from either Sidious or Vader. Yeah, um, you know, because as Jimmy said, it's about the training, and, and without a certain set of skills, he's of no use to them. So they they need to they need to provide him with the tools to at least accomplish the job that they require of him. And also, you know, you have to consider the fact, too, that we're dealing with an era where the balance of the force is significantly shifted. And so it's out of balance because of the dominance of the Sith at this time. So if you are a force user of the light, you're at an immediate disadvantage. Yeah. And so that's why Kanan may be more skilled and may be better trained than the Inquisitor. But because of that shift in the balance of the force, the Inquisitor has the obvious advantage. Any Sith thing, would. The thing with Kanan is that I think until basically the first episode of the show, his Jedi skills had kind of been dormant since Order 66. Yes. You know, he he was all about hiding the fact that he was a Jedi. Like, he was hiding in plain sight. Do whatever I can so that they don't discover I'm a Jedi. And now, Arish, I, Arish, I know you're going to get on me for not reading a book. No, I'm not. But, <laughs> but, I mean, let me ask you this, because mm-hmm. this is something maybe I've, I've read somewhere, maybe someone told me, I just don't remember. When we see Kanan assemble his lightsaber and use it to defend the rebels against... Agent Callus in his forces in Spark of Rebellion. Is that the first time Kanan publicly reveals that he is indeed a Jedi? I believe so, yes. I can back you up, yes. See, Teresa's read all the books. Yeah, <laughs> and in the new dawn, like he he the last thing he wants to do is use any of his force powers. You know, he wants to stay hidden. He doesn't want to be involved in in any rebel groups or, you know, he just he wants to just go about his nine to five job, have a drink in the cantina at the end of the day, wake up the next day and do the same thing and 
like if I just act normal, they won't find out I'm a Jedi. He is so he's like hiding. he has become the Doug Heffernan, the King of Queens of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is he's inspired by Hera. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and through the course of the novel, like she kind of, you know, awakens his, his Jedi sensibilities a little bit, but he doesn't actually do anything very Jedi-like. He uses the Force a little bit, um, but that's about it. Um, He uses the Force when they get into some jams, and he has to. Um, But, Erish, correct me if I'm wrong, Hera finds out that he's a Jedi because doesn't she see his lightsaber? Well, hello. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I, I was waiting for that. Um, (laughs) We don't disappoint. I feel embarrassed. I've I read the book so long ago. Yeah, I, honestly I don't, remember don't remember exactly, but I believe that she discovers it on her own um, by accident, and then she recognizes him using the Force, you know, kind of under the radar. Yeah. And she doesn't ever say anything, you know, about it, and it it ends up coming out later. Um, when I believe he actually tells her, but she's very perceptive and it's partially that that makes her want to pursue Kanan to join her crew. Uh, there were two other things that came up on Rebels Recon that I thought were were interesting. Obviously, the confirmation that Hera is Cham Sandala's daughter. Um, but another one was, uh, we, we spoke last week, uh, Teresa, about the fact that they keep talking about the Jedi and Tarkin, especially as if it's ancient history, but it's, it's really within the lifespan of the certainly well within the lifespan of the people that are currently, uh, um, of, uh, of, of the age of remembrance, you know, in the galaxy far, far away. Uh, but Pablo is making the case that we're talking about 10,000 Jedi scattered across the entire galaxy and that the average citizen would have no knowledge of it at all. So it wasn't all that difficult to extinguish their memory. Do you buy it? Um, I actually, I, I kind of do. And only because it seemed like at the time that we're in Revenge of the Sith, you've got the majority of the Jedi are, or at least for a while prior to Revenge of the Sith, have been concentrated in the core worlds, it seems. Um, And then, you know, the only place that they're really visible is wherever there is activity happening um, in the war. So it's very possible that there are a lot of planets and areas out there in the galaxy that maybe have never seen a Jedi, um, that they didn't have any of the Clone Wars happening on their planet, um, and that if there was a Jedi that fled to those planets after Order 66, I mean, they were like Kanan. They went into hiding. Um, so it was probably really easy for Order 66 to occur and for not everybody to know about it. Um, it's a lot more massive place than, we'll say, Earth. Massive. <laughs> you know? Sure. Massive. And so, you know, and I mean... We don't really know for sure, like, how much the news got out to all the other planets. It doesn't seem like it really did, if you judge just from Tatooine um, being in the, in the Outer Rim. Um, they didn't really seem to get a lot of the same the messages that were happening, you know, on Coruscant. So, yeah, I, I could believe it. Mm-hmm. It's something that always bothered me about the Revenge of the Sith novelization is at the very beginning of the book... They talk about Kenobi and Skywalker, about how kids all over the galaxy knew who they were and had their posters up in their bedroom, like they're freaking Kanye and Kim Kardashian. You know, it's really that's kind of how the book opens. It it makes it very clear that that news reporting on the war was was very public and very open and that people did know in the general population who Skywalker and Kenobi were. Now, when you're talking about general population, are we talking about a galaxy-wide occurrence, or are we just talking about the people on Coruscant? Maybe that's just it. Maybe it's just told from that perspective. It's more planet-based than 
on the grand galactic scheme of things. But uh, I never, ever was comfortable with, with those passages in the Revenge of the Sith novelization where they talk about Kenobi and Skywalker, Skywalker and Kenobi, two names synonymous with like they made them sound like they were the rock stars Probably of the Clone Wars. Heroes. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Exactly. And, and I was never, ever comfortable with that because I always assumed that the Jedi f- did relatively fly under the radar. And it would only be people witnessing what they can do out on the battlefield. Thus, it became talk of legends because Jedi were supposed to be disciplined. They were supposed to control when they used the force and they would only use it in moments of defense and uh, they would not be aggressive in their use of the force. Now, I guess that would the, you know shift from Jedi to Jedi. And of course, when you're out on the battlefield, my God, I'd be using the force every single minute of every single day. But, well, but it just, sorry, Erish, I know you want to talk and you don't want to hear me talk. You've made no, that you've made that absolutely clear since the beginning of this show. <laughs> no, I love Irish. He, he is my favorite book editor of all time. Well, I was just going to say that, uh, and thank you. But I was just going to say that uh, you know the Jedi are they're just their appearance is very humble too. You know, brown robes and yes, and nothing flashy, and they don't go out of their way to draw attention upon themselves. Um, yeah, you know, I, you it's know. It, 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 it's not like, you know, after a big battle, then they have a red carpet event and photo ops with the Jedi. Yeah. It, it would never be anything like that. And I don't think the media would ever even be exposed to it. I think it would have been something that would have been sort of protected and and, 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 and pushed under the radar. But, I mean, there are moments in canon that have even proved me wrong. There have been moments throughout the series, the Clone Wars series, where it was sort of obvious that the exploits of the Jedi on the battlefield were being heavily publicized. You remember those big message boards on Coruscant that were, you know, showing video of, of Palpatine addressing things happening in the course of the war and maybe even along with some some video from the battlefield and stuff. And it was on these big like Times Square-esque billboards. So it's it's obvious that the Jedi were known, at least that that's how we've been led to believe through those sources we've already talked about. Sure. I and mean, I, I think that when you mentioned earlier about it perhaps being a very local story to Coruscant, I think that that carries some weight. I mean, if you look at the way uh, folks in large metropolitan areas, the types of news that they would consume versus, say, more rural areas where that mm-hmm. sort of thing, you know, those those types of stories never make headlines. So I and, and of course, as Teresa points out, I mean, we're not talking about a country here or even one planet. We're talking about, you know, multiple planets, you know, spanning across an entire galaxy. So I think difficult uh, to create sort of real world comparisons, but it's. You know, you, you do tend to go there because I, I always feel like Star Wars cheats a little bit on the timeline uh, oh, from the aging of Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi to, you know, of course, uh, that's a name I've not heard. In a well, that was time. the, the like harsh ten years conditions ago. of the planet that he was living on. Uh, of course. Uh, uh, there's always a way. I mean, there's always a way. Of course, there's always a way. I just, but you know, we get yeah. uh, we, we get a sense of this, how the, the populace thinks of the Jedi, too, when Ezra tells Visago that Kanan's a Jedi. And he just bursts out laughing yeah, at the right, thought right. of Kanan being a Jedi. It, to him, it's just unbelievable. There's no way this guy's a Jedi. Well, maybe maybe you have to look at it on a, a much smaller scale and just consider the fact that Kanan has been so good at disguising the fact that he is a Jedi that yeah. Visago finds it to be completely absurd because he has been exposed to Kanan in the past. And he's seen for himself that Kanan does not exhibit anything near Jedi skills. And that's just because Kanan is so good at hiding that. Yeah, right. they've probably gone out drinking together. And, I mean, you know, you can just imagine you find out that this guy who's, who's doing some of this, uh, you know, underhanded and seedy work for you turns out that, you know, or someone says, well, he's a former guardian of peace and justice in the, right. in the galaxy. You would absolutely yeah, think. Visago probably considers him a peer, you know, somebody who likes to mix it up, somebody who works in the underground, somebody who works, mm. you know, outside the law. And, um, right. and, and, and just the whole concept of what Visago knows of a Jedi and the type of person Kanan is, it's absurd. It's just absurd. Yeah. 
Irish well, it, yeah, go ahead, Teresa. Well, it's kind of obvious that Visago doesn't really truly understand the Jedi either, because if he did, because he called Ezra a Jedi just because he was able to use the Force. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ezra could figure out that he's able to use the Force and not be a Jedi, and he could lift a crate, you know? Um, yes, but I think that that's probably very indicative of the few in the public that do know know what a Jedi is, I, I think they would all make that mistake. Right. And he makes that mistake and then, and maybe it's not a mistake, but he chooses to say, okay, well, I could use this to my advantage. And he, you know, draws Ezra in and they have the whole exchange of information. But to me, it feels like maybe Visago's a little bit naive and maybe he doesn't realize what he's getting himself into while at the same time Ezra's doing the same thing. So it's going to be curious to see how that plays out um, because they're both, you know, they don't, they both don't have the full picture of what they're really doing by making a deal with each other. Well, and before we wrap up, I did want to ask you, you Arish, obviously we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Ezra. This was an important episode for him though. Um, certainly was a little overshadowed by some of the other topics that we covered, but this is a moment where he, he really steps up and not just challenges Hera, but is almost uh, a little mutiny. And we've always seen that there's something that separates Hera from the rest as if she knows something that the others don't. And perhaps we've sort of discovered what it is in this episode. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, he's showing his, uh, his maturity, because he's he's making these decisions behind her back because he knows that she can't. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would agree with that. So it's not so much he in a way he's doing it for her, not against her. Yes. Yeah, I mean he's 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 doing it for himself and for Kanan also. You know, he knows that Kanan would do everything that he could possibly do to rescue Ezra. And so he's trying to do the same, but I think that Ezra is aware enough to know that Hera is not in a position that she can make the call on this one. And so he's got to do it. Right. It's, it's interesting. It's almost as if Hera, you know, in a way Ezra and the others may be a little too close to Canaan, but maybe Hera is a little too close and a little too precious about this, uh, Fulcrum character and this big mission that she's uh, she's wrapped into, which I think mm-hmm. we're going to find out is uh, related to her uh, her newly revealed father or newly confirmed father, uh, Champ Sindola from the Clone Wars. That's going to wrap things up here and our look at Rebel Resolve. <laughs> One more episode to go. Short season, I think. It's been confirmed that we'll get a longer season with season two, and the break won't be too terrible uh, because we'll be seeing the premiere in just a couple of months. Yeah, I got a question for you about that, Jason. Yeah. We're getting the premiere at Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. Correct. So does that mean that season two of Rebels is going to be like right around the corner after that event. It seems odd that they would make us wait until October of 2015 after showing us the premiere in April. It seems like a long wait. What do you think? Are we going to be seeing Star Wars Rebels return with season two, maybe in the spring? I I think it's, it's definitely possible. I mean, it's not as long of a wait as it is to get to... Uh... Episode 7, but you're right. It's a long wait, and it seems odd and a strange play to put it out so early and then have such a a long time until it uh, shows up on broadcast. I think that we're going to get another season, although I wouldn't be surprised if we see some sort of mid-season break, which then would uh, resume perhaps late summer, early fall and take us through the holidays and then 
be done. I, I, I mean, it's not unusual, particularly for animation, to have sort of oddly timed seasons. That October through May season um, has been primarily for things outside of cartoons. Now we'll we see. know. Now we know that Rebels was guaranteed a second season. It was announced by. Disney that Rebels would be doing a season two. Would you be... That was even before the, the show premiered. It's, right. It seemed to be very well orchestrated, very well arranged. Do you Would you be surprised if there were only two seasons of Star Wars Rebels? And yes. that this series, this series would be considered nothing more as something to tide us over until the film opens. I'd be very surprised. I think that they're I think they're going to double down on Rebels. I think it's going to be here for uh, several more years. I think they're investing a lot in the characters and um, no, I think they I, I think they're here to stay for a good while. Maybe we're looking at a very short season in the spring, maybe another mini season or half season. And then they'll start uh, with uh, technically season three in the fall. I don't know. You guys want to chime in here? Eris yeah, probably well, can't. Season two, they said, is going to be 20-something episodes. So I, I actually heard 26. Yeah, I think that's correct. 26 episodes for season two. So since we but had... they're only 10 minutes long each. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're they're, they're mean, webisodes. Look at that number, 26. That's double the number of proper episodes we got for season one. Yeah. which was 13 solid episodes. So could we be seeing, yeah, like you said, Jason, maybe uh, a season uh, 2.A or, <laughs> you know, in oh, season yeah, 2.B. Yeah, look, look, look at Sopranos, look at Battlestar Galactica. I mean, they were all over the place with, yeah, the, breaking with their bad. seasons. Yeah, Breaking Bad. Yeah, Walking so, Dead. Hey, the sooner the better. Absolutely. Who cares? Yeah, sooner the better. Who cares what we but, call it? But yeah. I do think that, you know, Showing the the season two premiere at Celebration is a no brainer. I mean, you've got it's the ultimate place for Star Wars fans to go this year, so it, it makes perfect sense to show it to me, even if we're not going to get the actual season two until September or October. Um, but yeah, sooner the better. Absolutely, bring them on. Hey, Arish, thank you so much for uh, being on the program. Thanks for having me on, guys. With us. Yeah, so uh, Arish is... seeing you guys in a couple months. It's yes. I know. We're going to be together. I think we'll be on stage together, right? If we yeah, play our I cards so. right. Yeah. That seems about right. Uh, Arish, where can go, folks go if they want to uh, follow the exploits of uh, Arish Chernovice online? Uh, I'm at Darth... On Twitter, I'm at Darth underscore Duff. And, uh... Oh, like Homer's beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh... For Delray, it's at Delray Star Wars on Twitter and on Facebook, where Star Wars books. Very nice, Teresa Delgado. You're a little bit everywhere. A little bit. <laughs> Is there a one-stop shop for you? Yeah, one-stop shop would be my Twitter and my Instagram, which is at Ice Cold Penguin. I pretty much post everything that I'm doing on there, so that's where I would go. Very cool. Hey, Teresa, thank you for being with us. Oh, and, you're welcome. And we I love look, it. Yeah, we look forward. Whenever season two is, whether it's in April, May, October, December, it doesn't matter. We'd like to have you back, and we'll be talking a lot more Rebels, I think. Oh, I'd love to, and I'll see you guys in April. Absolutely. Uh, Jimmy Mack, final thoughts on Rebel Resolve. All right, Jason, I got your final thoughts. Uh, something we didn't really talk about was Chopper's presence in this episode, uh, because, you know, he's Chopper. So uh, sometimes we take him for granted, I fear. And that's probably why he's so cranky all the time. But I love the chopper action in this episode. He had tons of action. He flies into a scout walker at the beginning of the episode. He goes undercover on board an Imperial cruiser in the middle of the episode. And then he escapes from that cruiser by, by taking off out the airlock and bringing some troopers along with him. It was great. It was awesome. Just great stuff. And I'm really excited about the prospect of returning to Mustafar. Because as much as I love the connections we've already seen between Rebels and the original trilogy, I want to see the show become this ultimate bridge between the two trilogies and start incorporating more elements from 
the prequels and specifically the Clone Wars. And if Ahsoka Tano really does return, then we're going to be getting exactly that. Really looking forward to uh, seeing the direction the show is going to go in, especially if it can provide that bond between the two trilogies because the show's placement puts it in such a spot that it really gives it that advantage. And, and I can't wait to see how Dave Filoni and the guys pull all that off. It's a, it's a tightrope uh, walking, walking act, but it's one that's going to make all Star Wars fans happy if they can eventually pull it off, make Rebels the ultimate bridge between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. I love a good cliffhanger. Uh, we, we, we've got one here now going on for a few weeks. Hard to call this a story arc. It seems like the whole series is one giant sprawling arc. And I prefer to look at it that way. Just one big addition to the Star Wars saga. Um, so much fun talking about these episodes each and every week. And I am just really chomping at the bit to see the grand finale go down next week for season one of Star Wars Rebels. Puff a pig. Not in this episode. <laughs> and uh, just as a reminder for those of you that uh, the episode will not be streamed early. We all have to gather around the telly and uh, watch it together as it premieres on Monday, March 2nd on Disney XD. And, uh, but I'm sure it'll be released to streaming shortly thereafter. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back as we wrap up Season 1 of Star Wars Rebels. Lots more to talk about, I'm sure. Until next time, love you all so much for Rebel Force Radio. I'm Jason. And I'm Jimmy Mag. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> and remember, Force will be with you always. When I have my mic on, I am. That is. Hustle <laughs> Pig!